Hey there. Welcome back to Great Quarter Guys, the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. This is episode 57. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I've got Seth home with me here as well. It's been a busy week in the freight markets. Not only have the freight markets reversed a, a little bit of a downtrend in January, have picked up a little bit of steam here in the third week of January, but we had some big news on a huge uh, acquisition of UPS Freight. So we're going to break down the pros and cons of that acquisition, what we see the potential for TFI International and that acquisition, what where they can go from here. We may also talk a little bit about Bascom Majors, the analyst at, uh, at Susquehanna. He downgraded six trucking stocks. We may get into that if we have some time. But before that, we're going to do You Care or Nah. So Seth, I'm going to give you an idea, a topic, or event. You tell me whether you care or not nah and why. All right. So first one is a little bit of economic data. We had some recent housing data come in. U.S. existing home sales reached the highest level in 14 years in December. Seth, you care or not? Nah? Yep, I care. Um, you know, this is great, great news for trucking. Um, you know, uh, the continue to see the benefit of uh, lower interest rates. Uh, COVID is definitely playing a factor here, as well as people, you know, leaving the cities and uh, and moving to the suburbs. Um, two things that I think uh, are sort of interesting out of that is whether uh, once people are vaccinated, you know, I kind of think that a lot of at least the younger people will head back to the city. Um, but I guess that remains to be seen. And the other thing is, um, you know, the price increases uh, you and I were talking about that are, are definitely going to soon start to offset some of the benefit of these really low interest rates. So the average 30 year fix right now is about 2.77 percent. But the average national home price is also up 13 percent because there's no supply. Um, so, yeah, I do care. I'm with you on this one. I care very much about this as well. You're right. The biggest issue for the home builders and for potential home buyers is the supply. So homes for sale in December were down 23% year over year. We have just over uh, just less than two months of supply. That's a really low supply of houses. I wrote on Friday in the pricing in the DHL supply chain pricing power index that we needed another source of freight. You mentioned this last week uh, on Great Quarter Guys when we talked about industrial production, and and it was great to see some additional sources of demand and a broadening of the economy away from just stimulus driven, uh, consumer driven demand. The one thing I do see here that's a little bit frightening. It, it's it's positive on one side, but frightening on the other is that this is kind of a evidence, this could be evidence of a potential long-term effect of COVID. And that's just the dichotomy between uh, the people that did lose their jobs, the lower income, lower skilled workers, and the the, the ones that didn't. Uh, I mean, you, you just have job losses. Most of them, the majority of the job losses came from that lower skilled and lower income earners, but the higher paying jobs weren't hit as bad. And then they still had no, you know, they took no vacations, didn't spend money on services. So they have a better war chest to go out with, which is a great thing. But I mean, it, do, it could be evidence of this, of this dichotomy as well. One thing I want to worry, I right. to, to speak about was just the, uh, the possibility of a potential pull forward a little bit, you know, maybe, and this is something that you, you and I laughed about off air, but, you know, I wonder if uh, potential home buyers have any idea of the federal reserve or any idea that they, that there's a potential that they've put out some inklings that uh, interest rates could be rising towards the back half of the year or next year. I wonder if that will have any effect on demand. Maybe people uh, get excited and buy before, but you had a funny thing to say <laughs> about the fed. Yeah, backed by no evidence. But I, I, my guess was that a lot of Americans either don't know uh, who the Federal Reserve is, uh, and and if they do, they don't follow them. I think uh, home buyers are, in terms of FOMO, fear of missing out. I think they're much more likely to respond to either uh, 
30-year fixed. Yeah, I think they're more likely to watch 30-year fixed rates and, and where those are tracking. So if they move up too far or too fast, I think that FOMO um, sets in. But to your point um, about, um, I think, you know, one, in addition to stock prices, um, I think you made an interesting point there. Uh, this is just another unintended consequence of, you know, easy money from Fed policy, uh, which is that it disproportionately benefits um, higher income people who can afford houses and buy stocks and all that kind of stuff. So it, it sort of magnifies that inequality um, there as well. Right. Precisely. Last thing to note is that the South posted the strongest gains this year with sales up 7% year over year. Had to put that in there. All right. So the next one here is on. No, not not at all. Uh, Chattanooga and uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, some big winners in that uh, in that southern region. So the next one is on foreign direct investment. So China overtook America as the world's top destination for foreign direct investment this year. Seth, you care or not? Uh, I don't care on this one. I think this is much ado about nothing. It makes for a great headline and it, it looks like the U.S. is, you know, in, in major secular decline and, and China's, you know, um, just riding that star uh, to the top spot. But, um, you know, and, and, I, and I believe Xi Jinping was, uh, you know, addressed the World Economic Forum as the keynote. Uh, and, and, you know, this, got, this made a lot of headlines. But really, I mean, Europe was, if you read the Wall Street Journal article, Europe was down 75% too. I think a lot of it is a function of not only how they better handled COVID, uh, but the fact that they're coming out of it earlier. In other words, I expect, you know, uh, foreign direct investment in the U.S. to pick up in 2021 and 2022 again. As you can see on this chart, China's been steadily rising. And I also think that, um, you know, the, the Trump administration and their mercantilist policies probably hurt this a little bit, as you can see over the on those blue lines over the past three or four years since he got in office. And so you'll, you'll have a net, uh, a net benefit from, uh, you know, sort of more uh, agreeable foreign policy from the Biden administration, as well as economic rebound. Both of those things will will help that number in the U.S. over the, And I think they'll they'll overtake China again. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of the same notes. Uh, I saw the U.S. was down 49 percent this year. Again, I don't think that has anything to do truly with, you know, not not to say so much to the secular decline, more so much as just the, the effect of the virus. Um, but, you know, total foreign direct investment remains substantially higher uh, in the U.S. in total than in China. I, I was just seeing something that uh, Samsung is scouting out new locations for a chip factory that they're going to build either in Texas or Arizona, somewhere in the southwest. It's a 17 billion dollar investment. So that would have been like 15 percent of this year's total investment just on one plant from one company. And that's going to happen in the next year. So, yeah, I don't think this is anything to worry about. I don't care about this number. I didn't come out and say that, but I'm with you on, on almost everything you said. All right. So by next the way, one. By, by the way, just one that that's an annual number. That's not a total number, like you said, right? So, yes, I mean, correct. It, it, this is the first annual year. But if you look at the U.S. in terms of a cumulative total number, it's way bigger, and and I think right. it'll remain that way. Yes, agreed. Probably some somewhere down the road, China does take over, but uh, you know, I'm yeah. hoping it's many years, many years away. All right. So third one for you is on a, a partnership between Aurora Innovation, the company that just bought Uber's ATG autonomous vehicle division. They have linked up with Packard to bring autonomous big rigs to the market in the next several years. Seth, what do you think? you care or not about this partnership between Packard and Aurora Innovation? I do. I care. Um, you know, I think Packard's, uh, it owns Kenworth and Peterbilt, right? And so I think their market share 
last time I looked at the OEM market share in the U.S. and North America, it's like a third, a third, a third between Volvo and Packard. And, um, and I'm blanking on the third right now, but I know it. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you got to, uh, I think you have to care. The other thing is, um, yeah, I mean, it does feel a little bit, uh, one thing that I've, that I've noticed is I've gotten a little bit more bullish on autonomous trucking, both because I have a friend who works at a big trucking company who, uh, who has sort of made me that way, uh, who knows a lot, a lot about this. And, uh, on the midday market update last Thursday, uh, which you're on, um, the, this, I think it was the CEO or the CTO of Kodiak robotics was on there. And I thought he laid out like a really sort of well-spoken compelling case for why the future of, you know, ATs rather than AVs are, are a lot closer than most people think. And, uh, and that, you know, it was going to surprise people. Yes, I do care about this one as well. Uh, I love this that Aurora, I really like Aurora Innovation, by the way, after doing some research on the team, they're led by three former leaders at Waymo, uh, Google's autonomous vehicle uh, division from Uber, and then from Tesla as well. So they've got a lot of experience in the autonomous vehicle sector on this team, and they're not wasting any time. I mean, they just closed that Uber deal on a Tuesday of last week, and then the next day they announced this deal with Packard. So I think that they're moving quickly. Um, they've been testing commercial vehicles with testing their tech in Packard for about a year now, apparently, and, and have done some commercial runs in the Fort Worth area. But I think this is their first partnership in the big rig space, in the actual uh, with, with a Class 8 OEM. They've got some deals with Hyundai and the new, uh, the new, our, our new favorite Stellantis as well on the, uh, on the commercial vehicle side, but at the, or on the personal vehicle side rather. But I think this is their first one on the big rig side. So yes, I'm very excited about this. It follows some similar deals we've seen from Daimler and Waymo uh, and from, from the VW group Triton, uh, Trayton, excuse me, and Too Simple. So I think this is great for Aurora. I'm excited to see them enter the big rig space and see where they go with it over the next few months. All right, so last one for you. This is on Costco, one of your favorites. It is testing out curbside pickup at a handful of stores in New Mexico. What do you think? you care or not? I care. I love Costco. You know it. Um, I was at Costco on Saturday. Um, you know, one thing I like about Costco is uh, I think the CEO said our head isn't buried in the sand, but they they play a different game, even than Walmart and Target, um, who've been really successful with curbside pickup. Apps have a lot of other retailers. Costco was a little bit late to launch uh, in a major way. They're online, but um, over the last few quarters, that's really been picking up and becoming material for them. So uh, Costco uh, also has the treasure hunt in their store, and the stores are always packed. Uh, there's not enough of them. Uh, there's, I mean, do you know how many global Costcos there are, Andrew? Ooh, 1,600. 500 uh, last time no off way. the top of my head. Yeah, which 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 compares to Walmart. Uh, it, it may be more like 550, but Walmart, I believe, has 5,000 in the U.S. So they like that sort of scarcity factor, that treasure hunt experience. And so I think it makes a little bit of sense why they've been delayed. I mean, I would love it. Um, you know, I, I personally enjoy going in the Costco and going through all the aisles. And that's why they they move all your favorite stuff around on you all the time, other than the, you know, the wine and the, and the food, everything else moves around. So you have to go find it. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to be some huge needle mover though uh, for Costco, because I think the vast majority of their customers will continue to kind of go in there and buy it and pick it, pick it up themselves. Yeah. They've said that this isn't going to be a nationwide strategy anytime soon. They're testing this very limit, limited, li, in a limited basis, uh, just in three 
at three stores in one market, as I said. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Their stores are um, magnets for product discovery and and finding new stuff. So they've been reluctant because they haven't needed to. Their CEO has said just as as late as I think November, uh, he basically said that other people are are adding curbside because they have to or they feel the need to. But uh, as you said, I think the next line came. We don't have our head buried in the sand. Uh, and I'm, I do care about this because it could be a change in strategy for Costco. I don't think they need the change in strategy. As you said, I think that once, uh, especially once COVID is over for them, they've gained a lot of market share as other grocers has, have not been able to survive 2020. Um, and then, you know, there, a lot of their pitch to customers, the, the sampling, the, the experiences you can have inside the store aren't available to them right now. So it's, it's an even better story leaving the pandemic than it, than it, than it was coming in, I think. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, I used to always worry about Costco, which is, you know, how can this retailer trade at 40 times earnings and not have any online revenue? Like eventually that's going to end badly, but they always seem to find a way. And uh, and and even in this age of COVID where e-commerce has gone from, you know, 11 percent of retail to 30 or 40, um, you know, they've they've done better than ever. So. One thing I wanted to note that I touched on uh, when I talked about this on uh, on the midday market update was just this idea of of e-commerce in the U.S. and how we're so search based. Like we, our whole idea of e-commerce is based around the the Google search bar and the Amazon search bar. We know what we want typically when we go, which is the complete opposite uh, to the way that Costco tries to add value and tries to to increase revenues, which is that browsing product discovery. So I think that they're going to have to be creative in the ways that they can uh, grow e-commerce with still having some sort of experience of treasure hunting, you know, like where it's huge in China, they have a a much bigger browsing uh, e-commerce space where people go online, not having any idea what they want to buy just with money to spend. Uh, But that's not the case in the US. So I think that Costco could be one of the ways that if, if they get creative on how they do this, they could be one of the leaders here. Amazon does similar things just with, you know, the, the things that say, you know, people that bought this also bought this or people, uh, things that pair well with your thing that you did buy. So I think they can get creative there. But all right, let's, uh, let's shift gears. Let's push on to our main topic of the day. That is the UPS freight, uh, the acquisition of UPS freight by TFI International. So UPS is selling its LTL division to uh it's selling its selling its LTL division UPS freight for eight hundred million dollars. This reflects the UPS plan to focus more on its core parcel business, which is surging with growth in e-commerce. The market also really likes it from both sides. TFI spiked twenty two percent on the day of the announcement. Tom Wadowitz, an analyst at UBS, believes the impressive move up in the TFI stock is a clear reflection of investor confidence in TFI's management ability to deliver margin improvement in the business. Seth, you said on our Slack channel that uh, if TFI can turn this around as fast as the market assumes, I'll be impressed. We'll circle back around to that comment. But why don't you detail a little bit about why um, why Tomei, the new CEO for UPS, was so quick to divest this uh, this division of UPS Freight? She just became CEO a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, so many thoughts here, and and I would start out just by saying like. Uh, TFI International is actually, I've, I've learned a lot in the last 24 hours. It's one of the companies that I'm not uh, closest to. So I don't have totally fully formed thoughts here, uh, but we are going to do, uh, you know, uh, I write our passport research along with a couple other analysts uh, at Freight Waves, and we're going to do a deep dive on this on Thursday. So if you are a passport subscriber, look out for, uh, look out for that. And I'll have sort of more well-formed and more well-researched thoughts uh, around a lot of the, uh, around a lot of all this, but to your question on UPS, 
Um, so I think Carol Tomei's overriding philosophy uh, since she got the job, she's been on the board for 18 years, like you said, since 2003 at, at, uh, at UPS. She was also the longtime CFO of Home Depot, and she's known for efficiency. So her, her overriding philosophy uh, was uh, to uh, less, uh, more, uh, to, to not just grow, to grow, right? To grow profitably and to uh and to grow as uh sort of eps and return on capital as fast as possible so this makes sense it's a non-core asset uh even though it sounds huge 800 million in revenue is is very small for ups uh given their size uh this thing has a, uh, the ups freight has not been uh it had a basically you know, somewhere between a zero and a 2% uh, operating margin or a 98 to 100 OR in the last year. And it's been shrinking uh, slowly and uh, and it's been a problem uh, for UPS as well. So I think this is a way to quickly shed an underperforming asset, uh, build up cash and also boost, uh, They the UPS said in their uh, press release that this would boost their uh, operating margin and return on invested capital by 20 basis points. And so it's, and then it also sends just a greater signal to the market that Carol means business. And she's, you know, she's pruning the, the portfolio to focus on core parcel assets that are faster growing and higher margin. Yeah, you're right about that. Let's, I want to take a, a minute just to go through a couple of these notes here. So Satish Dell, the president of Ship Matrix, he believed that UPS never really seemed to be serious about their LTL division. He said the huge tech investments that UPS has made in the top of its company have not really trickled down to its LTL business, which he thinks is in desperate need of digitization. He says, uh, we also, in the uh, FreightWaves article, you can go and read on FreightWaves.com, they talk about the integration of overnight into UPS. Uh, the overnight uh, transportation was the company that was eventually rebranded to UPS Freight. They said that the integration was fraught from the start. The ink was barely dry on the transaction when UPS executives descended upon the headquarters in Richmond and began to make major changes. Uh, but the, the problem was that apparently UPS was trying to apply its parcel-centric learnings to LTL operations, and they quickly learned how much different LTL is than parcel. Uh, the integration moved very slowly. The cultural fit never seemed to, to feel right. UPS did maintain the headquarters in Richmond, but the, the unit operated on a different wavelength than the rest of the UPS organization. <clears throat> but integration wasn't even the biggest operational misstep uh, for UPS Freight. So, Seth, we, you're going to give us more details. The Passport members will get more detail on Thursday. But there's, they, they had a big problem with the way that they were selling these freight services, bundling uh, small package and, uh, and LTL services together. So that kind of leads into the cons and the pros of this story. So let's, let's go through the cons from TFI's perspective. So, uh, Seth, you want to start off with just there at the top? Start off with the cons, you said? Yeah, we'll go into some of the cons. So the first one there was that uh, yeah. you know they have a lot of these unprofitable contracts because of the pricing strategy that UPS Freight was uh, implementing. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I'm trying to think in my head how to. Uh, so it's a very hairy asset uh, to begin with, and I don't know that I would call it broken, but it's it's four different uh, parties have owned this for the better part of uh, 35 or 40 years, and um, starting uh, at least as far back as I could tell. Uh, Union Union Pacific uh, bought this back in the mid '80s and lost a bunch of money, and then and then had to uh, spin it off, and then um, it got bought by UPS, and they weren't able to turn it around amongst other people. So um, I think it's also unionized. That's that's one um, point uh, that that bears are sort of latching onto. 
which adds a lot of costs and reduces the margins. Uh, you spoke to the pricing strategy, which was certainly not optimal, and it was being run as sort of a smaller division of a gigantic parcel company. So now they're gonna they're, they are gonna continue that relationship for five years with existing customers. But I do think that um, you know uh, TFI is gonna have to re-implement the whole sales team and the whole sales approach. And they're actually supposedly, uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to the, they had an M&A deal call for investors yesterday, but they spoke to the likelihood of basically purposely shedding, uh, like call it a billion of this $4 billion in revenue because it was revenue that was unprofitable with over a hundred OR. So um, lots and lots of work to do here and other people haven't been able to turn around. I would say the caveat to that uh, is they didn't pay much for it. Um, they paid about 0.25 times revenue. You can't really compute any uh, below the, the line items um, valuation multiple because it loses money. Um, so, uh, but that being said, compared to the LTL comparisons, even you know the ODFL trades at above five times revenue, and you've got it somewhere in those notes. Uh, you know, I believe Saya is at, at two or three, and the, and the other unionized LTL players are, are at least double that around 0 0.4, 0 0.5 times. So um, one could argue there's a margin of safety um, because this came with a ton of trucks and a ton of hubs as well. But it, it my overall sense is, and, and I think everyone would agree, is this is not going to be easy to turn. It's almost like turning around. Uh, it's like it's a multi-year turnaround and it's like turning around the Titanic and, uh, you know, uh, or a big ship, basically, maybe not the Titanic. That's not a great mm -hmm. Greatest metaphor, but yeah, not uh, best. turning around a, a big, a big slow-moving ship, I guess, is uh, is what I'm trying to say. Right. So the three cons that we can touch on here are, are the 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 problem with some of the contracts. So uh, Alan Bedard, the, the the CEO of TFI, said that he was actually surprised when doing their DT about how many of the contracts actually that the UPS freight had that were running at an at over 100 OR, just losing money on these contracts. So that's going to be one thing. They're going to have to reshape the sales force and how they're going to be pricing and selling this freight. Uh, the, the second con, of course, is that yes, it is a unionized shop. Uh, unionized shops in general, as you just mentioned, get a much lower multiple uh, on, on valuation. And then the third here is that they've said that, that the trucks are the number one priority on the on this integration. So they're going to be buying a lot of new trucks, trying to bring that age fleet down, which inherently tells you that they that they paid more uh, than that maybe price that was paid, the 800 million, right? Uh, explain that a bit, just knowing that they're going to have to put some money in on CapEx. I think they said they're going to have to double their annual CapEx here in the first two years. Yeah, I mean, it's just if you buy an asset that's been underinvested in and you have to invest in it, that just effectively increases the uh, the purchase price. Um, so, you know, uh, if if your average fleet age is, is three or four years and you want to bring it down to a year and a half or two years, which is what a lot of the enterprise truckload carriers um, are at, just to lower that maintenance expense, lower that downtime, improve the asset turns. Uh, you know, that's likely you can kind of go through the math, but if it's all new trucks, it's 150 grand times, you know, right now, I, I believe they have around 6,500 total LTL trucks. Uh, so, I mean, you can kind of do the math based on whatever percentage uh, they need to upgrade. Right. So let's look, let's take a look at some of the pros here. So the first is obviously just the assets that they were able to accumulate here with this, with this transaction. I think we've got uh, a chart here of just the, the number of hubs and terminals that UPS or that 
TFI is adding here. So the TFI is in yellow, their previous um, terminals, which are pretty much all spread out across Canada. They've also got some operations in Mexico. We're going to talk about that being a big point here as well. But look at all those blue terminals and assets they get. I mean, they're paying more or less book value or maybe a little bit less than book value for the assets, as you said, getting a really what the analysts are saying is a, is a pretty good price. They're adding 197 facilities here. Um, and I think one of the big things that, that needs to be spoken about here is the amount of people that are going to have to be integrated into this TFI system. TFI is going from 2,500 employees to something like six, 16,000 or 17,000 employees with this, uh, with, with this acquisition. So 8Xing in size. Um, but the potential here. So let's let's talk about what they're going to need to do to achieve that 90% OR that they say that they that that the goal to achieve. I think it is in three, maybe five years uh, to get there. So they're going to need to walk a tightrope to simultaneously drive service levels up and also drive yield improvements, which is not going to be easy. But analysts do think that it's possible. So the deal appears to allow for plenty of room uh, for runway for TFI to improve the profitability of the business. The, from the call, uh, the, the M&A call that you were mentioning earlier, CEO Alan Bedard said, we see compelling opportunities to improve yield, efficiency, and productivity, both in near and long term through separate management of the LTL and dedicated truckload businesses. So that's that's one important thing. They're going to be splitting these, I think, um, of the UPS freight, I think it's 12 or 14% of total revenue is on the dedicated side. That's going to be taken away out of the uh, LTL business and, and given to uh, the dedicated business of TFI. Um, and then there's one last kicker here. Actually, let's, let's wait on the union talk just for a moment, but let's, let's go back to that. Uh, the idea of the pros. UPS freight, yeah, pros, but the idea of UPS freight being a centerpiece for what TFI is trying to do with its cross-border, uh, operation. So they've got a, a pretty, um, robust operation in Canada and they're also beefing up Mexican operations, but this UPS freight with huge lines up and down Texas and, and massive connection from Mexico to Canada can act as a kind of a centerpiece of this network. Can it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So uh, I, I want to step back for a minute. I'm not actually bearish at all in this transaction. I, I'm undecided um, despite my, my, bad metaphor there, but I, I think there's a ton of pros here. Uh, they didn't pay much for this asset. Um, they can drive a lot of yield improvements, uh, the margins. Uh, so TFI has made 90 acquisitions over the last 12 years, according to the Bank of America note we read. So they're clearly seasoned pros at integrating assets, and they're probably better at doing it than everyone else. And um, if you look at just like the synergies and the uh, accretion to the earnings, from this, a lot of analysts think that um, you know if they can keep three of the four billion revenue uh, in revenue, and then you know increase the margin uh, to ten percent, this could add like more than fifty percent uh, to run rate EPS. So it look and and given the fact that they're they're basically paying below replacement costs for trucks and hubs, that starts to look pretty good if they can pull this off. And and the last thing I would say is. You know, the multiple, even after a run up in the stock of I think it's between because it's up again today, it's somewhere between like 30 and 50 percent. Uh, it's up over the past two days. So the market clearly likes this deal. And not only that, uh, the multiple, at least on an EBITDA and a PE basis uh, of the consolidated entity, which is now going to be almost half LTL, is still way below. Even after this run is still way below sort of the blue chip non-unionized LTLs and ODFL and, uh, and uh, SIA and, and XBO. So a lot of like, in other words, if they, 
this could be a transformative deal. And if they're successful, I think it would, yeah, the market would gain a lot of confidence and probably re-rate this to a much higher multiple. Yeah, I definitely think you're right about the, the investor sentiment. I mean, you can see Tom Wadowitz said it about the, the jump in share price. It's definitely investors feeling that the TFI proven track record can translate into success here. I think there's another point to make just about the scale of TFI now. They're going to be the fifth largest LTL player in the country. And the LTL market structure, the industry structure, has been proven to be highly favorable to participants with scale. This is something you and I were talking about. It's much more uh, concentrated than the truckload market. I think the, the Bank of America notes that the top 10 carriers control more than 75% of the market. So uh, this is, you know, this is a good point to be able to get them to a sort of scale where they can compete with the ODFLs and the SIAs of the country. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we kind of talked about this. I mean, uh, I guess we're signing off. Is that uh I guess we're signing off. We will uh, see you guys next week. This has been episode 57. Catch all of our stuff live on Freightwaves TV. Go to Freightcast to get all of our content on demand. Thanks. See you next time.